All right, our topic for this evening is uh, human nature, gender, and the imago dei, or the image of God. Now let's talk about the lay of the land. And I do mean lay in a deliberately provocative manner. What, in other words, is the current view of sex, sexual preference, and gender? All right, and by current view, I do mean literally what they're saying right now, not five years ago or 15 years ago or in 20, because it has been a continual flux and change of views. In other words, what do, generally speaking, Americans think about this? I don't mean heartland Americans, if we want to think of this in political. I do mean coastal Americans. If you ask a person from where I came from in Ashland a few years ago, they would probably look at me like, what? Okay. But as a general lay in terms of what you're going to find on you know, television programs, movies, film, cultural phenomena. Wow, this marker just broke. Weird. All right, let's start with sex. Not sexual intercourse, just sex. Like, uh, you have to specify your sex on a form. You know what I mean? Well, that marker's dead. I think I know why it's cracked. So let's toss that one, yeah? Oh, this is never going to work. That's a Crayola marker. <laughs> this is the setup. There we go. Current view. We're going to define three key terms. First, what is sex? Sex, according to the current view, is the biological equipment with which you've been born. So, you know, the, you used to be born, the doctors would turn you over and say, aha, it's a boy, it's a girl. Nowadays, you can't technically specify that anymore. That would be presumptuous and insulting to whoever the person ultimately wishes to identify with, right? But historically, if you had a penis, it said, oh, it really is a boy, right? And if you didn't, like, oh, this is a girl. So sex, in the, this original sense, is the biological equipment that you were born with. Next, sexual preference. Sexual preference is your orientation which, let's just say what we mean, desire, for, and then you can fill in the blank. Historically, there were really only three options. You were heterosexual, homosexual, and then a, even though people didn't like this, you were bisexual. So you either battered for your own side, you battered for the other side, or you battered for both. Yeah? To use the famous Seinfeld episode analogy. Okay, now of course they've got lots of other forms of sexuality. Asexuality, pansexuality, it never ends. But since I'm not sure that any of those have any meaning, I'm just going to go with these three because I think we all understand what's being said. Next, three, gender. According to the current view, gender is the inner, subjective, state, think of this as a feeling, in which one identifies with well, that's getting messed up. Let's erase that, fix that. particular sexual consciousness. And what I mean by that 
is independently of what biological equipment, what sex you're born with, independently of what sexual preference you have, you could be born sexually a man, biological equipment-wise, but on the, on the current theory, you might inner-wise feel a sense that, well, I feel like my feelings are more in keeping with the way women feel, therefore, I identify as a woman, or vice versa. So a man might say, because I presumably think, of course, there's no evidence he could possibly know this, but for sake of argument, he presumably could say, well, I think that my feelings are analogous to the way women feel, then I identify as a woman. Because of this additional doctrine, it follows that the sexual preference lists are not so clear. So for example, you could have a man, sexually, born with biological equipment, with a penis, who identifies as a woman and desires sexual preference women. Now you say, well, wouldn't that make him a heterosexual again? Don't you come full circle? No, he would say he's a lesbian. Now, those of you who are aware of this kind of thinking and thought the implications of this through, you're like, good God, does it ever end? No, it does not. Okay, so none of these categories, once you add this additional point, none of these categories are fixed anymore, are they? And so what we now have is a doctrine from all of this, which is broadly called gender fluidity. Essentially, you can be... You can desire whoever, whatever, and how many of whomever, whatever you like, and how dare anyone have anything to say negatively about it. Now, if you pay attention to this, it's ironic that the only way for the identity people to identify themselves is with the very genders that they claim are not objective. So if I say as a man, I identify as a woman, you're all supposed to understand by woman a real kind of thing. Whereas on the new theory, to be a woman is just a certain subjective state, you see? So it's curious. You find all kinds of inconsistencies in here. But logic and inconsistencies do not seem to matter to the people that maintain this doctrine. Why? Because they believe they can transform themselves by all sorts of different meanings. Surgery can alter sex. You can chop off your organs and rebuild them. The surgeons are brilliant at this now. Hormones, feelings, desires, all kinds of things can alter your identity. So by this means, it seems that sex, sexual preference, and gender is an open ballgame. Now, there's a theory that underlies all of this. And we're going to start by looking at that theory before we look at what the church has to say about all this. Because the principle undergirding all of this is this doctrine. And I want you to pay close attention to this. Thought determines being. What I am, what reality is, is caused by, determined by, implied by consciousness.
So I can literally transform what hitherto was considered reality by changing my mind about it. So if I feel like a woman, who are you to say that I'm not? How dare you? I was drinking with you just the other day. You're like, good God, who are you? <laughs> exactly, right? It makes it tricky. And you're thinking, you look like a man, you act like a man. Are you sure you're not a man? Didn't your mother say you were a boy when you were born? No, it's irrelevant because I feel this. So what I feel becomes determinate. What's in my consciousness changes, determines what is real. Now, for those of you who have some history and schooling in some philosophy, history of thought, and I know from some of our conversations in the last couple of weeks that there are some of you in that state, you'll recognize this as German thought from the 1800s and French thought from the existentialists in the 1960s. This is no longer mere philosophical abstraction. This has become at the center of an American revolutionary sex, sexual orientation, and gender movement. And so for us to look at this, we're not going to start with what the church says about it. We're going to start with the question of, well, do we buy this idea? Does thought determine being? Does consciousness determine reality? Can we simply think things and that makes them what they are? I seem to recall giving you the example of the locomotive and the man on the tracks watching the locomotive come steaming toward him who says, well, I know you believe that this is nothing but steel and iron. It's going to smash me into smithereens when it hits me. But in my view, it's jello. And when it hits me, it's going to ooze around a body with a refreshing lightness of being. And we step back and we're like, well, it's getting closer. Are you sure you don't want to change views? It's jello. Okay. Does it become jello just because I want it to be jello? Does reality change just because I want it to change? Does my thought cause reality? And it might be a seemingly pleasant thought that if you're tied to the train tracks and the train is coming, to go with the jello theory. Okay, fine, I get that. But for most people, if you had the chance to step off the tracks, look, abandon jello, go with steel and move, right? Does reality really conform to your desires? If it did, wouldn't you be happy? Wouldn't you just change everything and make yourself happy? Have you ever noticed how reality seems to get in the way of your happiness? Doesn't seem that reality is changeable by human thought. What if we contradicted our senses of reality? What if you said, well, I might look like a man, but I think I'm a woman. And I say, well, you might look like a man, but I think you're a man. Why does your consciousness determine what you are and not mine? What about the group? What about different economic classes? Right? What about all these different possibilities? Why is it that the individual literally determines identity? These are very important questions that nobody is asking because it is the culturally dominant view that is wanted to be believed. But we have to look at this philosophically and ask the question, does this really make sense? I'm born into reality. Reality exists before I'm even born. 
So how is it that reality must conform to me? It seems much more reasonable to think that I'm the one who needs to conform to reality. And when human beings do not conform to reality, they walk off cliffs like Wiley e. Coyote and they think, I should be fine. But you die and you don't come back, right? Darwinism takes effect and those people get ruled out. So philosophically, this view has a lot of problems, serious problems. Now, let's take a look and see what the church, what God has to say about this. Because interestingly, he has an awful lot to say about this. So, pull out those texts. Let's take a look at St. John's Gospel and start with the Catholic view. St. John's Gospel, John chapter 1, right at the beginning, we see the Christian history of creation in very theoretical terms. Which, at this point, by this point, our course you'll love. Okay, so I love it. John 1, page 78 in the New Testament section. All right, here we go. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All right, from our study of the Trinity, who is the Word? Well, before he's Jesus, before the Incarnation? The Eternal Son. Remember that we have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father is who God is in his essence, and he speaks or thinks himself. This is, of course, the Eternal Son, who is the expression of the Father. So in order to know the Father, we come to know the Father by means of the Son. The Word is thus the concept, the perfect idea of God. And so we call him the Word, or in Greek, the Logos. And of course, the Word was God, true. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So question, who has the power by means of thought, by means of word, to bring things into being? Very interesting. It turns out it is possible to have consciousness entail being. It is. Only it turns out to be what kind of attribute? Divine. I mean, really. Can you just think an eight ball into existence? No. Not even an eight ball. But look what God did. Genesis 1. Go all the way to the beginning. Looks at the old Hebrew version of this. Literally the beginning of the beginning. Page. <laughs> Page one. <laughs> that should be easy to find, yeah? That's this side. Yeah, yeah, there you go. All right, here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Verse 6, God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. And God made the firmament. Verse 9, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one dry place. Let the land appear, and it was so. Verse 20, God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures. And of course, guess what? What appeared? Swarms of living creatures. You starting to get the theme here? Who alone, by the power of thought, by the power of the eternal word, who we now realize is the Son, 
Who alone has the power to bring things into being through thinking? This is a divine thing. Which means this is hubris on a shocking and truly arrogant scale. I told you earlier in our course, if there's one thing you should learn, maybe you say, okay, I'm not becoming Catholic. All right, fine, don't become Catholic. Although I think most of you are on the way. Learn this thing, ready? You are not a god. You don't get to create reality. You don't get to create goodness. You don't get to create happiness. That's not the way it works. These are divine prerogatives. And God has created the world. And he alone gets to make these things. You might say, well, I don't like it. So what? Who cares what you like? Grow up. Try conforming your likes to the way it is. Well, I don't like the fact that I can't breathe on the moon, so I'm going to take my space helmet off when I get there. Okay. And what's going to happen to you? <laughs> and then we deal with you. You're done. Next astronaut, please. Don't you think they test for these things for the astronaut program? Are you going to take your helmet off? Do you think that reality is more important than the way you desire? Well, yeah, actually. You're in, right? And the German philosophers, you're out. There's another person who thought that thought entailed being, that he could simply bring things into reality based on what he thought. We studied him too, remember? I shall rise above the most high and I shall fix this little crazy idea the father has of instantiating himself in human nature. <laughs> crazy. Let's get this corrected. Mm -mm. Nope, mistake. This philosophy that thought entails being, that we can change reality by what we want it to be, is a demonic concept. And the thing is that demons can't do this either. So, we all understand that this current view, when it's boiled down to its basic element, is thought. Correct. The individuals who believe it, however, play some semantics with it. Yeah. And they say things like, I was born this way. Yeah. This is how I feel. I don't feel female. I don't feel male. Right. I believe there was, they don't ever say mistake because. Well, not anymore. No. Well, not at all. Right. They may, may used to have said it was a mistake. But yeah. now it's not, it's not viewed as even a mistake. It's right. It's viewed as to how they are. So it's, you never hear anyone saying, I was born female, but I really am a man because I want to be. It's no, it's because that's who I am. Right. Except the gender fluidity doctrine allows you to change that. Yes. And people say, well, I was experimenting with this. I thought then that I was really a man, but now I realize I really was a female after all. So it's all over the map, right? I mean, originally, the argument in the 80s was that there are no bisexuals. Because bisexuals seem to defeat the doctrine that you're born this way. You're either homosexual or you're heterosexual. There's no way you can be both because then, then apparently people have a choice. You're really fooling yourself. Right. And now at some point the bisexuals were saying, wait a minute, we've been here the whole time. We like everybody. We're the true inclusive lovers. Right? And now they added the letter B to the list. Right? But of course if that's true, then what does it mean to say you're born this way?
So let's address that after we explicate the theological view. And then we'll be able to better explain the question of, so why on earth do people have these desires? Because if we can't talk about that, we have a problem. Because you're right. A lot of people have a lot of desires that make us scratch our heads. And maybe we ourselves have desires that make us scratch our heads. And what are we supposed to do with them? So what does that mean, though, for the five-year-old boy who doesn't have sexual thoughts, feelings at age five, who know, who, who makes those comments of, I should, be a, I should be a girl, I don't feel like a boy. What, what, what did she say? What did she say? Well, I don't know that all kids say that. Some kids do. Well, what's happened, what's basically has been happening is that the adult who thinks they know everything says, oh, look, listen to the child. The child knows that they're not a boy if they're a girl. They all play. They all try on different hats. But it's just the nature. There it's, when are, it's when an adult takes over, takes charge of what they're saying, where this gets construed. There are... A lot of kids, though, have parents who are like, no, you're a boy. And nevertheless, and the child insists. Right? Right. And then they're distressed. And, right. You know, they, it's not like it's, it's, it's like a, I don't know, it's like saying, no, you're not anxious. You don't have anything to worry about. But you might. You might be anxious, and you might not have anything to worry about, right? And that's what I'm saying. When you sure. tell a child, well, no, you, like... But, if, but, go, but use your example of anxiety. If you're anxious, but in fact you have nothing to worry about, I mean, normally anxiety is caught by a real external cause, right? And then you identify the external cause. You say, oh, well, there isn't, in fact, a monster in your closet. Oh, I feel relieved, right? But on other times you might feel anxious, and you say, what are you anxious about? Well, I don't know. And then at some point we say psychologically, well, you seem to have an anxiety disorder. You seem to be anxious all the time, and your anxiety does not accord with reality. Now, at that point, we say you have a psychological disorder. Your feelings are not in conformity to reality. Then we try to treat that, and that's the way these things used to be dealt with. Some people may have feelings that are not in accord with reality. But on the new doctrine, the doctrine is the way you feel, even if you're five, some people say it's determinate. Other people say, no, 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 you need to wait. Because children are all, all over the map and all these kinds of things. And she's right, they do try on a lot of different hats. And then parents have to deal with this. Well, what do I do if my kid wants to try and address? Right? And different parents come up with different strategies for how to handle that. So, on the old theory, the old theory, that was a psychological disorder. And so it would try to be therapeutically treated. It was in the psychology handbook as a disorder. That has since been excised. And in order to fully evaluate this, we have to look at the underlying nature of human beings, the metaphysics of human nature. And only then can we look at our experience, because our experience is inconsistent. If I can literally be whatever I want to be at any time and my gender changes accordingly, 
this becomes highly problematic. So let's look through the nature of, human, of what human beings really are as we're about to look at Genesis. Then we'll look more closely at this question of, so what are we supposed to do in our experience with these problems? Because we have to address the kinds of questions you're asking. And frankly, sometimes Christians don't do a very good job at this. But on the other hand, we can't just act like, okay, well, so whatever you want goes, and you're apparently changing the your nature of your being left and right. And now suddenly women are whatever you want them to be. Because if women are whatever you want them to be, you see the implications of this, right? There's no such thing as women. If there's no such thing as women, then what you women have fought for for decades is instantaneously gone. You're not victims because there's no such thing as a woman. And all these men who now say, well, we're women too, you might say, wait a minute, who do these people think they are? We're the women, we're the ones who've suffered on the vulnerable side of this gender. Where do these men get off thinking they can come in and take this status and the rights that we have hard fought won? See the, see the full implications of this? So this has truly shocking ethical and political, political consequences. But if you turn around and say, no, we're barring the door, you may not come in, then of course you might be offending their feelings. What about women who want to be men because they see that that's where all I mean, young girls growing up can see that the writing on the wall, the power lies with the men. Certain kinds of power. Yeah. But women have their own kind of power. Yeah, but young girls might not see that if they're, like, growing up in a family where they have an absent father. Or, or they have an abusive father. Or an abusive father. Absolutely. They feel like the power lies with the men, so Correct. they want to be with the men. Well, you can want to be with men, but not want to be men. They want to be a man. That's what I'm saying. It, yeah. You know, it can go. It goes both ways. But even there, there's a difference. That's absolutely right. You have the thing going both directions, yeah. and you have uh, women. But very often, wanting, saying, "Oh, I wish I were a man." Girls go through a certain phase sometimes, but then they say, "Well, I wanted the independence that men had. Mm -hmm. I wanted the freedom that men had. I wanted the security of not having to constantly worry that I'm going to be sexually assaulted that men presumably have." And then at some point, then their femininity more fully expresses, and they still say, I want the freedom that men have. I want the power that men have. But good God, I'm really glad I'm a woman. Right? So it's a little bit of a back and forth. But this identity question exists on both sides. And you're absolutely right to point that out, that it goes both directions. Now let's take a look, continuing in Genesis, and see where this goes. Because God has shockingly a lot to say about, a lot to say about this. Maybe you're not shocked. Maybe you know exactly where this is going. Chapter 1, continue Genesis, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Notice that God says, Let us make man in our image. I'm going to have to erase this, yeah? He says, let us make man in our image, and then immediately switches to the plural. Man is made in God's image. 
and equals a them. This is very interesting. Watch where this goes. So God did, created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. What is the him? Male and female, he created them. So here we have a truly remarkable thing. I mean, the full implications of this is astonishing. The angels are never said to us, at least, to be made in God's image. The animals are also certainly never said to be made in God's image, but we are. Now, what distinguishes us from both angels and animals and makes us like God? And there's one key factor. When we studied God's nature, we saw that he was a trinity of persons and that he has the capacity to beget. And he is eternally begotten in the form of the Son. Only human beings have the capacity to beget persons. The animals beget after their likeness, but they're not persons. The angels are persons, but they do not beget. But human beings, right? That baby you had, a person. I mean, this is something else. We participate in the image of God. A multiplicity of persons in one substance. The multiplicity of the divine persons in one substance we call the Holy Trinity, the ultimate community of eternal love. Every single divine estate that God created for us is a multiplicity of persons in one substance. This right here from the very beginning is the first of the three estates. God creates human nature as a multiplicity of persons in one substance. And notice this multiplicity is male and female. And I want you to get the full significance of this. I am male. It follows that I am not completely what? Human. Elisa is female. She is not completely what? Human. human. What is human nature? What is man? Male and female created he them. The completeness of human nature is instantiated in a substantive reality that God calls what? Family. marriage. To be completely human, you must have that kind of interaction with the other gender. Think about how different, how individualistic, how selfish you were before you married and began to really grow up. Look back and try to be a little bit honest. 
And if that doesn't do it for you, then think about what happened when you had your first kid. And then, did you have time to be selfish? <sighs> By the time your kids graduate, you're like, oh yeah, I'm a person? <laughs> it's a system designed to teach. What do you think the divine system is designed to teach us? What has been the objective the entire time? That we should what? Love the Lord our God with all our hearts, soul, and mind, and love our neighbors as ourselves. How do you learn that any better way than through what marriage puts you through? Yeah. Through what raising children puts you through. This is the divine plan. Look at teenage boys and girls. They have nothing in common. Nothing. And yet 10 years later, these completely different kinds of creatures are standing before an altar getting married. And we're supposed to believe this is going to work? And yet what happens when we work in our marriages? This male who likes sports and engines and is active and all these other things, and this female who likes to narrate social history and experience with emotions and cannot talk to her man, or she does, but he just does not listen, right? And this man who cannot seem to connect to this woman start this thing we call a marriage. It's hard, isn't it? And yet, what happens through that process? Growth, maturing, right? And suddenly, the boy becomes a man, and the man becomes a husband. And let me tell you something, there's a massive difference between a man and a husband. A girl becomes a woman, but she goes from being a girlfriend to being a wife. Think about that difference. You want to know why women want to be married? They understand. There's no comparison between a girlfriend and a wife. There's no comparison between a boyfriend and a husband. Marriage changes you. And it starts to grow you and transform you. And then you have children. And the same gender power that generated your boyhood or your girlhood, that generated your husbandness or your wifeness, now finds its fruition in fatherhood and motherhood. And you're just thrown into the cauldron of suffering and difficulty and anxiety and trouble. And therefore love, right? Absolutely. Because every single day you have to make that choice. Am I going to get up today or am I going to shoot myself? And most of us get up and a few of us shoot ourselves and that's unfortunate. And then you ultimately transform the final transformation which is grandparenting. Which is the final step before sainthood, but that's another lecture. God created our nature as a composite. As a partnership. This is the key concept I want you to learn. A complementarity. 
a complementarity of persons in one substance, like the Trinity. That's the essence of what it means to be human. It follows from this that gender is a higher category than sex. On the current view, we had sex first, biological equipment. Sexual preference next, who do you desire to screw? And then gender is however you happen to feel about who you think you are. That's completely backwards. The reality is that gender is not the lowest level that's based on your subjective intentional states. Gender is the highest possible level. Now think about this. We can even see this on a particular common level. Have you ever noticed that we apply gender categories to nouns? Those of you who know other languages, you know Spanish, Latin, right, Greek. How can you have gender applied to nouns? When was the last time two nouns got married and started having sex? Do nouns get together and produce pronouns? You're like, that's if I'd only understood that in grammar. No, I'm not trying to teach such grammar sexuality. We also apply gender categories to things. Right? Those of you who are Star Trek fans, Captain Kirk loves his ship, the Enterprise, and she's always a she. Right? Which is the ultimate reason why Captain Kirk can never love a woman. Because he loves his ship. We now, to this day, call ships she. Why? There's lots of words that have gender. We also apply gender categories to the feminine, of the feminine to the church. Do we not call her the bride of Christ? And yet, those of us who are in the church right now, and those males of you who are about to enter the church, you're males. But you are absolutely feminine when it comes to God. Because you're in the church. You say, how is that possible? How can I be male but feminine? We're the ones that have the identity theory correct. Because when it comes to God, we're all feminine. Christ is the one who is marrying us. We are the one who are being prepared for the ultimate love that all other loves speak. When God comes into us and fulfills us, that is masculine imagery. And we are the ones who are on the receiving end. God loved us because, we loved him rather, because he first loved us. He is the cause. He is the active agent. He is the pursuer. We are the pursued. You see the difference? So you may be biologically male, but if you're in the church, you're feminine to God. And masculine insofar as you're male. But notice, we apply gender categories to things that have nothing to do with biology. Again, here's another example. We apply gender categories to angels. We talked about the angels. Remember how we say he when we're talking about our guardian angel? Michael is a male, masculine name. But do angels have sex organs? No. They're pure minds. There's no sex organs. How can you be male and be an angel? The answer is you can't. But you can be masculine and be an angel. So let me be clear what I'm saying. These are the sexes. The genders are bigger. They are the masculine and the feminine. 
When these two categories are instantiated through biology and human nature, they yield male and female. When they're instantiated in lion nature, they yield male and female. Over and over and again, you see this replication. But they can be instantiated in other creatures that are not biological at all. And then you don't get maleness. Michael the Archangel is not a male, but you bet he is masculine. The masculine is a higher category that instantiates itself within human biology and produces our male. The feminine is a higher category that instantiates itself in our biology and becomes the female. Another example, again in the angelic ranks, we talked about the virtue angels, right? Whose job it is is to draw like magnets, pulling and luring and engineering and nurturing and pulling us toward who they are and what they are. Charity, nurturing us, constantly drawing us toward love. Faith, pulling us along. You understand the idea? This imagery of luring and pulling. You see the feminine built into that? Every single artistic exemplification of the virtues portrays them in feminine terms. You see why? Well, why stop there? Yeah. So if, okay, so we have the um, we have God saying, the, you know, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and male and female created, he him, male and female created. Hey, them. Um, so doesn't that mean God is masculine and feminine? Because no. we have man is masculine and feminine, and that is yes. God's image. Yes and no. Let me explain who God is and how the feminine. Let me, let me address the, the worry first and then give you the it metaphysics. Like, it seems like if you reverse engineer this, yes. then it should go back this way if it's going that way. Yes, I understand that. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Except God does not reveal himself as feminine. Okay. Right? The father is masculine. He begets the son who is masculine without any potentiality, without any matter. It's an eternal act of begetting. Without the female, without matter, without potency. This is part of what makes Christianity so fundamentally different to the Greeks who had a mother goddess. God is not female. God is not feminine. And yet, everything that is must ultimately find its origin in God's creative act. Thus, all being must originally find its origin in God. And then we begin to look, and we find that God, nevertheless, cares for us. God sends a spirit who comforts us. God nurtures us. And in Jesus, you see these, this double polarity all the time. He is the host who invites us to the supper, very masculine, and yet, he is the one eaten. He is the shepherd who cares for the sheep, and yet, he is the Lamb of God who is sacrificed. Image after image where Jesus depicts both. Here's what I'm trying to say. Every single feminine mode is in God. But God himself reveals himself essentially as masculine because there's no potential within him. He's pure act. He's the bull in the china shop. He comes in and he changes the world. He creates it. He breaks it. He's wild and untamed. That's the imagery we have to understand. That doesn't mean that females are less because... The masculine is essentially the essence of who God is. There is no feminine as a distinct entity until God creates. 
But once God creates, all creation is the feminine. And then the bifurcation of all the genders begins to double all the way down through the rest of creation. And so there's from the bottom of creation all the way to the top, there's this polarity. Some people even see it at the molecular level with protons and electrons. I don't know if that's true. It's interesting. But on these higher orders, you definitely see this. So we're all feminine to God. And yet you are a female and feminine to God. I'm a male, but I'm feminine to God too. Because in the end, we're both bride. So there's no lack of value. That's what I want you to understand. There's no lack of value. And that's the worry. Well, if, if God is not female, if God is not feminine, how is the feminine valuable? But that's the wrong question. There's no lack of value. God creates. Yeah, Paul. I, 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 think, the, I think you used the phrase feminine aspect. Yeah, it's, the modes. It's in the creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. Yeah. And then as you continue in the creed, there's no masculine pronoun assigned to the Holy Spirit. Not in the creed. Not in the creed. In the New Testament, they both use both the neuter and the masculine. Okay. Regardless, though, did you, did you use the phrase feminine aspect? Because the Holy Feminine Spirit, modes. Yeah, the Holy Spirit. Let me put it. All right. I'm a, since the deacon's not here, I can talk more openly. We'll just have to delete this part. Okay. If Father Jeremy can delete things, why can't I? You know this will not get deleted. Elise and I have had raging arguments about this, all right? Oh, okay. About whether the feminine and the Holy Spirit are the same. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> if it were permissible to say so for sure, I would say yeah. The trouble is I'm just not sure. And I don't want to go past what the church has said and what we've been had revealed. But if you said, man, the Holy Spirit sure looks like the way the feminine operates, behind the scenes, drawing things, moving things, the nature of love, the comforter, giver the giver of life, the nurturer. And, and the pronoun who was, was arguably more accurately translated from he. In the old creed, it's he. Well, yes, remember. But the, fa but the issue isn't the he. The, his the issue is the it. The fact that the spirit is using the neuter pronoun is awfully suggestive that it's not simply the masculine. Okay? I know what you're trying to say. Okay. And I wish I could say, obviously, the Holy Spirit's the feminine in God. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we can say that. I don't either. But it might turn out to be true. It might turn out to be true. But this is not something that the church has taught. This is not something that Jesus taught. So it's not like we'd say, oh, yeah, that's Catholic doctrine. But if you think to yourself, come on, there's something going on there. My wife would be like, you're on to something. And I'd be like, I wish you were on to something, and you might be. Okay. Fair enough. And you might be like, I knew it. <laughs> there is no lack of value. Remember, ultimately, we're males and females. We simply get to imperfectly represent these astonishingly higher categories. And ultimately, to teach one another who God is and what the creation is and how they relate. And I'll be blunt. Men, you need to listen to your wives. Uh, all the women are like, pay, pay attention. We need them to listen because we have to be the feminine to Christ. So it's time to wake up and start to learn. I'm planning to write an essay called, in parentheses, almost always listen to your wife. The positive examples are obviously Pontius Pilate should have listened to his wife. Maybe you shouldn't kill that guy. Yeah. 
Caesar should have listened to Caperna when she said, maybe you shouldn't go to the Senate today. I had a dream. He didn't. He went to the Senate. You say, well, why don't you just say always then? Well, I'm thinking of Adam and Eve. You're like, yeah, that was... Baptist. Oh. Oh, that's a... We need to write that down. Often listen to your wife. I'll change the title. All right. So... There is this fundamental polarity that seems to run all the way up and down the chain of being. Those of you who like C.S. Lewis, you've seen him reference the great dance in many of his different works, in the Narnia Chronicles, in the Space Trilogy, and other places. The great dance is a polarity, right? The, um, ice dancing. How about couples skating? Look how different that is from singles. Right? In the singles, you get the pure feminine grace mixed with a power that nobody can represent, right? In the males, you just get this astonishing power with these quadruple this and quadruple that. But then you bring together the man and the woman. And it's nice when they do triples and all that. I get that. But there's something else there, isn't there? There is a beauty that is accomplished solely through these two biological sexes instantiating these two genders, doing what the genders do, right? The man lifting up and the female radiating. It's amazing. And you find this over and over again within human nature. I think that's part of what Lewis is after when he talks about the great dance. So when we're talking about gender and sex, even though we use the terms interchangeably, realize that the genders are the highest level category of ultimate metaphysics. Metaphysics being what is real, okay? And then at this high level of the masculine and the feminine, which is instantiated in all these different areas, you have human nature. And our instantiation is male and female, whose unity in marriage, the sacrament, right, is the ultimate expression of human nature. We are incomplete without that crossing with the love of the other gender. So God created us from the beginning with a set of correlative powers and vulnerabilities. And I want you to think about that. Women, you complain legitimately that you're physically weaker and you are vulnerable. It's all true. So God then gave strength to men. What are we men supposed to do with that strength? Protect you. Lay down our lives. Are we supposed to be physically assaulting you? Can we do this? Of course we could. Should we? Husbands, do we have the right to use coercive power on our wives physically? Your war powers are reserved for the protection of your wife and children. Never, ever, ever should your wife ever see that power. Your physicality, your tremendous strength, is supposed to be her protector. Sexually, it's supposed to be what ravishes and lifts her up. She's attracted to that power. If you, if you turn it on her, it's a hideous assault. Women were made weaker so that you could shine. So when we men do the things that men throughout this country do to women, it is horrific. And it is an insult to God's creation. So don't you do that. 
Don't you do that. And women, you also have powers that we men cannot match. You have got a social engineering capability that is simply astonishing. You know what I'm talking about. You can engineer things and you can maneuver things, right? And if you wanted to, could you control your husband? Yes. Is that what that power is for? Mm -mm. Look, we have this terrible situation in our country. We have men physically assaulting women, destroying them, physical body and soul. But we also have another problem. We have women who are trying to dominate and control their husbands. And you see all these men walking around who are these shells of what men were supposed to be if their wives had truly loved them, had used this incredible power of the feminine for the good of their husband rather than to control him. Men, you need to exercise self-control. You cannot use your physical power to coerce and hurt your wife. Women, same exact thing. You must also exercise self-control. And you might say, but, but no buts. Do not use that power to control your husband. These powers were not given to us to control and harm one another. These powers are the gift of the correlative powers within gender that is meant so we can love each other. It's precisely because your wife is weak that you can hold the door for her and take out the trash and fix the gutters and all the other things that we men do. And the women love it. Never do women complain about that, do they? Nope. Or how about that theater, the Batman, the Joker movie, remember the original one? When this crazy gunman jumped on the stage and started shooting all those people? At least three different men jumped in front of their wives and girlfriend and protected them and took bullets and died. Not a single woman jumped in front of her husband. And that doesn't bother us in the least, does it? No. Because every woman here is like, well, they, they did the right thing. What happened to the equality? Hey, equality under the law? That's one thing. Sameness of being? No. Men and women are not the same beings. We are different. And the powers that men have mean that they have expectations and obligations. And if they have to sacrifice their lives to their wives and children, that is what they do. And we men don't like it when the man is a coward and doesn't do that. Right? The man doesn't come up to the bar and say, oh yeah, you know, I hid behind my wife. Sorry, you just don't get invited to the poker game when you do that, right? It doesn't work. Because men and women both have an expectation. Another example I use to see how the, even the moral virtues exhibit themselves through gender. Imagine there's an intruder and you're like, oh no, I'm hearing something downstairs. Your wife's like, I definitely hear something. You need to do something about it. If you as a man say, well, okay, I'll take the 38 and I'm going to hide in the closet with the children. If they get by you, I'll shoot them. Here, you take the shotgun. Good luck. Women, how many of you would be like, oh yeah, that's perfect. Oh, hands not going up all over the room? No, you're like, no, 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 no. I hide in the closet with the children. I'm the she-bear. I'm the last-ditch resistance. If he gets by you and takes you out, then I'm going to fight tooth and nail to protect my children. But you better get down there and take him out. Right? That doesn't mean a woman is cowardly because she hides in the closet with the children. The virtues, the moral virtues, remember, they are rational orderings of matter. It follows that if the matter is different, the virtue manifests differently. The matter is different. Every single moral virtue works through the matter of gender. It follows that every single virtue and vice differentiates according to gender. 
And so the virtue of courage is different in the way it manifests in men and women. Same definition, different manifestation. Every single virtue works this way. You can also see this in the vices. Look at the difference in psychological or psychiatric disorders. And if you do a study, you're going to realize there are vast gender disparities. Certain types of afflictions impact men. Other sorts of afflictions impact women. Why is that? Because the genders, through manifestation of, through sexuality, through human sexes, are really legitimately different things. So, gender is real. It's a fundamental category that manifests itself through the human nature. And it's supposed to manifest itself through correlative powers, correlative vulnerabilities, where we love each other. Remember, all power is given for the sake of those under it. So the idea is, men, with your incredible capabilities and powers that God has given to you, you're supposed to use those for the good of your wife. Wise, those incredible powers and capabilities that you have been given, you are supposed to use those for the good of your family, for your husband first. And this requires extreme self-control. <laughs> Tremendous virtue. That is why marriage is so hard. I mean, you thought becoming a Catholic was hard? I mean, then you just need justice, moderation, courage, and wisdom. Faith, hope, and love. Believe the creed. You're in. Now try living a married life. Because marriage is two people. Do you see the difference? The moral and theological virtues, as we've talked about them in the past, are all individual. Cynthia, you have faith, hope, and love. You hope Paolo does. Of course, he's your husband. He's the old Catholic. He drinks good wine, so obviously, right? But if he didn't have that, you could still have faith, hope, and love. But for your marriage to succeed, they both must work at it, right? If she's like the epitome wife of the year, and he's like, nah, I don't care. Is that marriage going to succeed? No. It follows, and ready for this? Watch this. There are composite virtues. Virtues of the composition of the two genders, what we might call marital virtues that are only possible through the conjunction of both genders working together through marriage. You say, well, what are those virtues? Two key virtues that take into account all the other ones, of course. Yeah, absolutely right. That's what our powers like, are for. Like, you, you have love, but your, your partner does, has never had a good example of love in their home. You know, then the wife can elevate the husband and vice versa. If the wife never had a good example and the husband has, then he can elevate There's a her. tremendous uh, hospitality, yeah. comforting, mm -hmm. teaching. All these powers work both ways. Elisa yeah. has taught me so many things. And we've only been married a short time. You're veterans. <laughs> You're the ones who should be talking about this. That's exactly right. We talked the other day about the sacrament of marriage, and we said it had two fundamental parts, a spiritual part and a material part, spirit and matter. And it turns out that that's exactly where these two virtues are. What are the two elements that constitute a marriage according to the church?
self-giving, loving fidelity. That's the spiritual essence. And then the physical? <laughs> Some of you said rings and you had me concerned. <laughs> no, not rings. Self-giving, loving sexuality. And when I say that these are virtues, I mean that these are, both of them are habits that are the excellence of marriage. So, to succeed in our marriages, in addition, individually, to trying to be just, to trying to be moderate, to living courageously, to seeking wisdom, all the cardinal virtues we talked about. Both of you must be doing that. In addition, you must both be devoted to faith, to hope, and to love. So you're supremely devoted to God. Becoming Catholic is a brilliant way to push in that direction. Because how else do you say, right? That's the ultimate say. The church demands the most. At that point, then we say, would you like to be married? You're like, yes, I would. And then you go through this event, and you realize, I've entered into something huge. Right. Huge. Way bigger than you. And you say, I promise to participate in these virtues. I will remain on a daily basis in loving, total self-giving commitment to you, my wife. I will remain in total self-giving, loving sexuality to you, my husband, and vice versa. And this becomes the habit of your life. And out of this, you get these new things. And every single couple produces these new things. Physically, you get kids, but you also get houses and jobs and artworks and civic expression. And out of this, you get, again, ideas and art and beauty. We just don't know what it's going to be till we see you, because we cannot predict it based on how you were as a teenager, that's for sure. Married couples become new entities. And there is this multiplicity of creation out of them, and it's a wonder to see it. And every single marriage is different from every other one. Even though the principles are the same, they all require self-giving, loving fidelity. They all require self-giving, loving sexuality. And yet, they're manifested through matter that's different. Elisa and you are different. You and you are different from each other. You and me, we're, we're both males. But who you are and who I am, very different kinds of males, different interests, different capabilities. I dare not try to do your job. I'd like you to say, and I dare not try to do yours. <laughs> so it follows that when you're with your wife and I'm with mine, our gender, we're both masculine. Feminine, both feminine, right? Manifestations of the male and the female. And yet, she's different from Elisa. You're different than I am, right? I'm different from you. And so there's this amazing capability it's just like all the different flowers, right? All the different animals. 
That's the kind of multiplicity of the arts and the sciences and all this creation that's going to come exploding out of these full human instantiations. And this is why the church says marriage is so absolutely critical. Because this is the way to fully maximize your humanity and form yourself into the sort of person who's going to finally understand God. Notice what's common to both of these ideas. Do you see what's common? What is it? Self-giving. Self-giving. The church emphasizes this with such force. If you're going through an annulment, they're going to ask you this question. Well, did you, you know, enter into a consensual relationship of self-giving love? I'm like, oh, self-giving? Well, we fell in love. Is that what you mean? Well, not really. You know, falling in love happens to you, and it's fun and delightful, whereas self-giving love is something you choose to do, and it's hard and difficult. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I thought falling in love is the preparation for marriage. No. Who told you that? Well, I'd listen to American music and American movies. Yeah, well, there's your problem. Since when do Americans know anything about marriage? Look at our divorce rates. Our young people don't know anything about marriage. Alisa was telling me this week, if you marry before 27, 26? Oh, it's like 22. 22? 75% of all marriages done then end in divorce. The national average is more like 50. We are not preparing our young for marriage. We're not, are we teaching them these things? No. And this is one of the disasters for us. All these divorces, and then we have people that are like, I don't think I want to get married. And they look at us, the older generation, and say, look at you. Why would we ever want to get married? And so we'll just live together. Who needs marriage? Just a piece of paper. We have our love. Well, if you don't marry, you don't really solve the problems, right? Because if you have kids, you can still split up, and they're going to suffer what happens in a divorce. And marriage is not just a piece of paper. If it were a piece of paper, you would do it. That's easy. What is marriage? You know, the, you know how the popularity of writing your wedding vows? The church will not let you do that. You say, well, that's probably because they're very liturgical. No. It's because the wedding vows tell you what marriage really is. And if you say, well, I believe in marriage fluidity. I can make marriage whatever I want it to be. The church will be like, well, good luck with that. They know what marriage is. And those of you who are married know what marriage is. And in sickness or in health, in richer and in poorer, right? You say, well, that sounds hard. Yes, that's what we're trying to communicate here. It is the single hardest thing you will ever do in your life. It's the hardest thing. You say, what about parenting? Well, parenting is tough, but your kids grow up and they leave. And many couples collapse at that point. And if you're at that older point in your life and your kids are just leaving and you're having trouble, do not give up the ship. This, there's a well-known calendar of marriage. Certain points, certain things happen. And again, they probably never told you this, right? The first three years are honeymoon period. Everyone knows that. Around year seven to ten, you get the famous seven-year stretch, the seventh inning stretch in baseball, the seventh year itch. It actually happens in the four to six-year period. That's when things start to fall apart. People just get divorced in the seventh year. Yeah. Around ages 27 to 32, most women actually go through their midlife crisis. 
You've always heard about the male midlife crisis. Well, that's very real. That's the 40s to 50s. I need a new wife. I need a new job. I need a new, right? Women have a very different experience because they're a different gender. You know, men, it's completely different for us. You get to decide. I will ask her on a date. I will ask her on a date. The girl's view is, I sure wish she would ask me on a date. What can I do to try to engineer that? Oh, I will bump into him at Macy's. And he's like, oh, how nice to see you. And she's like, hey, hey. Oh, where? B-dubs watching the game. B-dubs watching the game. Sorry, I, I don't know. See, this is the expert and I'm the fool. Starbucks. The point is, engineered, yeah? Where was I going with that? Women are in different clocks than men. Yeah, and so... Men do the asking. Men do the asking. So the women are constantly wondering, am I going to get asked? What's he going to do? Is he going to ask me or not? This is why pre-engagement drives women out of their minds. I mean, guys, you know you have the ring. You sit there in security and a nice ring. When will I give this turn? She's like, when, 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 when? And all her friends are like, when, 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 when? It's like, if I want a spring wedding, he's got to ask me by this date because we've got to get the deposits down and we got... Not that I went through No. <laughs> different genders, different powers. But it also follows that when you say, will you marry me? She says, yes. You made a singular choice. He's looked at all the other choices. You said, she's the one. She's thinking, could I have done better if I had waited? <laughs> now, the explosive energy of engagement drives that right out of the mind. The wedding drives everything out of the mind. It is a chaos of unbelievable human optimism, belief in the future. It is something not to be squandered. But at some point, reality begins to set in. And by women's ages, 27 to 32, just as the biological clock starts to kick in in full earnest, because by 40, you start to lose these capabilities, women go through a, I really could have done better. You're on Facebook, Kyle, that guy from college that you always thought kind of had a crush on you. And oh, look, Kyle's a doctor now. Mm -hmm. My husband oh, just lost his job. Life he's having. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not married either. And then Kyle texts you, emails you, and Facebook messengers you. There's no Kyle. I don't know. There is no Kyle. There's no Kyle. This is what happens. This is what happens. Over and over. I mean, in my family, I've seen that exact Facebook thing happen twice. Exactly. And here's the thing. In your vows, we have this line, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live, right? You know what that implies? There will be others. You have to realize this going in. You will find other people that are attracted to you, and you will have to say no. What I like to say, a woman says yes to you first when she's engaged, that's easy. She says yes to you when at the marriage altar. That's a little more difficult, but it's a euphoric moment. But you know when she really says yes to you? When she says no to Kyle. Now, husbands, that means you had better be on your game. Make sure Kyle's unattractive. <laughs> but, women, but women, let's face it, none of us men are ever going to measure up. And so when you're 27 and 29, you start thinking, well, could I have done better? No, not really, because Kyle's an asshole. <laughs>
and his wife dumped him. It doesn't matter. There, it is a complete illusion. So we have to grow up and say, nope, not doing that. Self-giving, loving fidelity. And remember, this is on every aspect of your life. Your intellect, your morals, your aspiration, your imagination, your desires. Everything move together toward the common good of your marriage and the habit of sexuality. And this is going to really shock you. You know, it's not the first part, it's not going to shock you. St. Paul tells us if you're unmarried, do not be having sex with people. That's not a surprise. The church has always taught that, right? Why? Because you really want to. With, of course you do. But you know what? Then St. Paul in the very same chapter says to married people, you really need to have sex with each other. Now, if you're unmarried in this room, you're like, what? How is this a problem? How, how? <laughs> and yet, if you're married, you know why St. Paul says that. We bring into the bedroom so much, don't we, sometimes? We should create a wall and not do it. We bring resentment and bitterness and anger, hurt and rage. We start to use sex as a weapon. Well, I just won't do this unless you do this. Or passive-aggressive, you just don't do anything and don't say why. Very female moves, aren't they? Men just get a little too rough in sex and enjoy the pain it inflicts. Or maybe they don't even worry about any repercussions. They just flat out do whatever they want to. We must not weaponize sex. If that's been in your relationship, talk to each other tonight and say, okay, we're not doing that anymore. Create a wall of love around the bedroom. Don't let that happen. Sex must be perpetually self-giving, freely given. You might say, well, I have my rights. Your spouse has obligations to you, but they are not rights. Rights are enforceable. You have no right to enforce your sexual interests on your wife. Your wife has no right to enforce her sexual interest on you. Say, but I really want to have sex with her. Then try talking about it. Figure out a way to make that work. There's all kinds of sex. Married, I'm talking about now. Obviously, there's all kinds of other sex. But right, but you can have passionate, romantic sex once February 14th gets here, right? You can have really, yeah, I'm tired, it's after work, okay. There's comforting sick sex, right? Where you sort of have sex, but we really can get very far, that's all right, let's go to sleep. Right? There's everyday sex. There's all kinds, because your life is full. And so your sexual relationship is going to have to understand and take it, figure all this out. And you're going to have to talk to one another. Why? Because what does God tell us about sex? What is sex? Adam knew his wife. This is so revealing from Genesis 4. What is sex? Ready? Here we go. Sex is fundamentally a mode of the most intimate human knowledge. It is not merely a physical action. 
It is a no mode of giving yourself to your spouse and vice versa. Not just physically and erotically and romantically, but intellectually and imaginatively and aspirationally. All these elements together. You take off your clothes, not just of your body, but of your soul. That is why it is so intimate. It requires this tremendous warrant. The confidence, the fidelity to know that this person will stay true to me and vice versa. The trust. Good God, man, you don't think about it. A woman goes into a room with a man by herself and takes her clothes off. What is going to happen to her? You aren't worried. But a woman who's a wife, whose husband loves her, total confidence. That is the Christian way. That is the Catholic principle. And that is why sex is a sacrament. It is sacramental. It is the sacramental seal on the virtue of marriage. And through this means, we come into this unique kind of knowledge of an intertwining of bodies that has this explosive capability to beget persons, but also to beget every other thing in our life, because that is what the genders do. Well, I didn't get to talk about all the distortions of desire or any number of other things I wanted to talk about. How much time do we have left? Five minutes. Perfect. All right. Any questions? <laughs> Cigarette. <laughs> yeah. Where's the confessional? We should. <laughs> yeah, Deacon can do it. We got to find priests. <laughs> oh, I'll talk quickly about priests. So one of the objections to this whole presentation is, okay, okay, okay. Wait a minute get married? Does it follow they're not, not human beings? What about nuns, Dr. Thiel? They're not married either. Okay, fair enough. Notice, if you listen carefully, and if you re-listen to this tape, you might, I might have screwed this up, but hopefully I got this consistent. I said, our completion as human beings is through the other gender. Normally, that is through the opposite sex. But if you enter into a consecrated life, if you take marriage and set it aside for the kingdom of God, you nevertheless find your completion through family, through the begetting of persons, and through the other gender. Have you ever noticed what nuns wear on their finger? A ring. What kind of ring? A wedding ring. Like, I thought they're not married. I know. The audacity, right? They are married. To whom are they married? Christ. And Christ is the perfect exemplification of the masculine. So through that devotion to Jesus, they, not through the biological male sexuality, but through their love of the masculine himself, they still find their fulfillment. And is it not true that nuns and other consecrated women produce spiritual children? What do we think these people are doing? They're praying for the church. They're teaching. They're nurturing. They're caring for the church in so many different ways. This is the fulfillment, you see? And of course, if that's true for nuns, what about priests? What are priests doing all the time? Caring for what? The church. And the church is the? Bride. The bride of Christ, the feminine. And if you think about it, have you ever, ever thought about how similar in certain ways a priest is to a husband? Not just a shepherd. And so through the love of the church, the priest also finds, not through the opposite sex biologically, but through the opposite gender metaphysically, at the higher level, you understand? 
that connection that fulfills and completes his nature. If he does it the way Father Jeremy talked to us about, in a self-giving way. Some priests can become selfish and individualistic. That doesn't work. It must be a community. And similarly, the priest also has children. You say, what children does the priest have? Every single baptism. Those of you who are going to be baptized, you're going to become the priest's children. Do you realize that? Or the deacons, in the case of the baptisms that you did. And do this, does the priest not feed us every Sunday? With spiritual food? You see the, you see the imagery? Yes, Paul? Well, I think the obvious just smacked me in the face. This is why we call the priest father. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and I've also noticed seminarians, at least the seminarians I've, I've talked to, and uh, priests also have a special kind of devotion to the Holy Mother. And the reason for this Blessed Mother connection is they do connect to her maternally because they don't have wives. And it's something. I was at a seminary once and I got stuck there because of a whole series of events. And they had to put me up, unfortunately, for them. But, so they stuck me in a priest room. And at the end of the day, they're like, okay, you're going to get to see something people don't get to see. I'm like, what is it? What weird right is going on in these seminaries, right? I was still, oops, like, Episcopalian at this point in my long journey. And I was on the way. I was almost there. Okay. I mean, I was Orthodox. So I come out and there's this long line of seminarians and there's a statue of the Blessed Mother. And every one of them goes up and they say goodnight to her, their mother. And that moment taught me so much. I realized this actually works. You can be unmarried and nevertheless find through the other gender, not through the other biological sex, not through sexual connection that we have in marriage, but through this alternative vocation, you can find this fulfillment. And of course, as you say, Father, and all the monks call themselves brothers, and all the consecrated sisters call themselves sisters, we all require the ultimate unity of family, a multiplicity of persons in one substance. It always comes back to the fulfillment of the Trinity. All right. Well, that was a difficult lecture to give. All right. We'll talk next week about the constitutionality of marriage and how this actually works on the nitty-gritty. And maybe we'll even take on this, uh, the issues of des desires and what we're supposed to do with desires if they seem completely out of whack, because we can talk about that too. All right, let's say the Lord's uh, Prayer in closing then. Yeah. <laughs>